You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan Robinson Lees. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Today we are chatting with local artist and sculptor Terence Plowright. With a deep desire for exploration, Terence shares his unique and inspiring journey. An innate desire to learn and grow, Terence has created opportunities at every turn, and this is reflected in his hundreds of works. Terence joins us at his studio in the Blue Mountains for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Terence, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thank you. Terence, in 2019, you were awarded the Order of Australian Medal for Services to Visual Arts. You've been involved in a number of global exhibitions, twice winning the Medici Medal and various other accolades. How do you go about balancing the extraneous recognition with that internal satisfaction of your work? Oh, that's an interesting question. The accolades uh, are received with, with, with some grace. Uh, I would say that, um, well, when I was initially phoned uh, with an offer to receive the Order of Australia, I thought it was a hoax. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, you know I actually nearly just hung up. So that came as a that came not not as a surprise. That came as a shock. But I I, w- I was uh, I thought you know this is really lovely that the, the public um, uh, are honouring me with this um, acknowledgement. However, as far as my own work is concerned, I'm probably the harshest critic of my work. Uh, there's a deep desire to always improve, to learn, uh, to explore, to experiment. And uh, so I'm never um, in, a, in a place of, of satisfaction. And look, uh, you know, talking about those other accolades too, to receive the Medici medals, there's over a thousand artists invited to the Biennale in Florence. And I must admit that I, I did feel quite chuffed. But you're only chuffed for a moment, and, and then that, that's history. You know, you move on. And with the Order of Australia, to some extent, that was similar. Um, I think my, my family were more chuffed than I was, and that was, that was beautiful. That was a beautiful experience with them, um, that uh, they also were, in a way, being so chuffed they were honouring me as well. And um, so, yeah, that was lovely. Do you look at quality versus quantity in terms of your success as an artist? How do you, do you measure your own work? Is it the number of things you're putting out year on year or is it that intrinsic knowledge of that's, that's a really quality piece of work? Look, that, that's an interesting question because, you know, I can see, you know, four or five other issues involved in that question. Um, I... Uh, I have to support a family. Well, I, not not anymore because my my children have um, have moved on and uh, they're in, involved in their own lives. 
But when I, my wife and I were supporting um, our children, we, I, there, were, there were a lot of projects I took on that I did not necessarily feel passionate about. But I took them on. They were artworks, but you know, nonetheless, I, I took them on because I knew that they were going to pay the rent and all the mortgage. <laughs> and um, the, they were going to help the kids through school. So there are, um, there's a small percentage of my work that was taken on for pragmatic reasons. However, when it comes to a lot of the uh, contemporary works, the larger public contemporary works, I, my, my attitude is to draw forth the best in myself and then to implement best practice. So the public end up with a work that is um, not only aesthetically pleasing and hopefully people you know, feel some sort of sense of connection to, but uh, will stand the test of time. Um, so it's not going to deteriorate you know, rapidly. Uh, and, and I think that I need to feel some sense of, of satisfaction with the end result as well, which is quite important. It is important, and yet I always see something else I could have done. And I don't know that I've ever had a project you know, out of the hundreds of works that I've done, probably shouldn't say this on air, but where I haven't come to the end of it and thought, oh, damn, <laughs> I could have done this and I could have done that. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that, that is something that um, constantly arises at the end of every project. You know, this in retrospect, uh, you, know, um, you know, I could have tweaked this or tweaked that. But look, in the end, you know, they are the result of that moment in time. And so you move on. And... and you move on to the next project and that then is the new excitement of the day. That ability to compartmentalise from one project to the next, have you always had that as a trait or is that something you've developed over time, do you think? It's compartmentalise. I'm not sure if that's the right word. I, I let go very quickly. What, what's, what's important to me is being present. And so your, your attention, um, your being is in that that's emerging, not what has gone before. And that, as an artist, uh, I think is, is absolutely, um, that's the substance, that's, that's the great basis of, of what uh, I believe brings forth new work and, and hopefully substantial work. Advice for young or up-and-coming artists, to your point earlier, around taking on projects and taking on work pragmatically, would you encourage them to, to say yes to anything that pops up in the early stages? Is it a matter of building a bit of momentum before you can pick and choose? Look, that's, that's a difficult question to answer because each of us are unique and every human being is going to have their own in, in process that they, that they will work through with life. However, I, when, I, when I first started in the arts, it was interesting. I shared a studio with some folk who were sculptors. Um, I was doing more stained glass at that stage. Um, I was doing a little bit of sculpture, but only just touching on it. Uh, the, the, these guys were the real artists, you know. The, the, they were daggy, long hair, and they, they, they were sketching all the time. And they were, you know, they were, 
and and philosophizing and uh, and I really I loved it. I loved just being in their company and um, and yet it was interesting that they there were projects they wouldn't take on. Uh, they and yet to um, to provide enough food and and rent so they could do their work they would go and wash dishes in you know at, at the local restaurant. And so I was taking on artwork, works that I probably didn't feel so, you know, a great connection with, but nonetheless. And, and the beauty of doing that was that I was learning. I was learning new skills. I was learning new materials. I, I would say in, in the first 15 years of my work, I worked with timber stone with um, chemicals, you know, uh, resins and, and, and polyurethanes. Uh, I worked with um, cast bronze, cast stainless steel, plate stainless steel. I worked with mosaics. I explored, 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 explored and experimented and experimented and experimented. Wholly and solely to develop a base from which I could then bounce off into new works, feeling quite confident that I can employ all of these materials and all of these skills um, because um, I had that experience there. Being pragmatic in those early days afforded in me a, a huge sort of development of, of, of material skills and, and techniques. And was that a deliberate choice to say, I want to try all this? Or no. did you just literally, whatever came in front of you, you were going to give it a crack? Yeah, it wasn't a deliberate choice. I wasn't that clever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was more like, um, look, initially, you know, it was more, no, just uh, someone would come and say, look, can you, can you do glass mosaics? And I'd say, well, look, I haven't, but um, you know, I'm happy to, to, to have a go. And, but I've done this and this and this and this. And they could see that I was skilled. So I'd come up with some designs and they say, look, we'd love it. So then I'd go ahead and, and read all the books and, and do some practicing and then make this glass mosaic. And they ended up being really successful. And that was true with everything that I did. To be honest, the first sculpture that I ever did was huge. I was doing a lot of stained glass work and this builder came to the studio and said, I'm building this huge shopping complex at 120 or 30 shops. We want something special, an artwork. And I had done some stained glass for this chap. So I said to him, well, are you thinking of stained glass as something special? He said, look, I'm open. And I said, what about a piece of sculpture? <laughs> and he said, yes. He said, look, come up with a drawing, come up with, with a maquette or something. And he said, and let's have a conversation. So I'd never done any sculpture in my life. So I, came, <laughs> I built this maquette. And, um, and then I was invited to a board meeting, so <clears throat> they opened the door and I walked in with this thing like a birthday cake, you know, <laughs> and placed it on the, on, on, on the board room table. And it, as I walked in, the architect stood up and he went, wow. And I thought, oh, that's a nice response. Anyway, this, this sculpture was granite, a 10-foot a ten base of 450 pieces of granite. And I had these huge glass prisms coming out, you know, four metres high. And they were 30 mil thick and they were bevelled on 
and they were bent and they were bevelled on all the edges and of course no one had ever bent glass like this in the country. So I'm going back to 1988 and so I, I had no idea whether we could do this. And as I'm walking out the door, the owner of the company put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Terence, you know, is this possible? And I said, look, we're going to have to do some experimentation. But I feel confident that I can do it. And he said, and then he looked at me with his wry smile and he said, how much is it going to cost me? <laughs> and I looked at him a bit terrified and then he just smiled and he said, heaps. <laughs> so I, I, I then went down to a whole bunch of glass people. They hadn't bent any glass like this. So I then went to Pilkington and talked to the manager of Pilkington's and I said, look, I want to make this artwork and the, this is the glass and I had a sample of it. I want to bend it. Can we do it? And um, he called his engineers up and the engineers said, no way, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. We've never done this. No one's ever done this in this country. Don't touch it. And then the manager said to me, do you believe we can do it? And I said, yes. I said, we will need to do some experimenting. I have some spare glass and I'm happy to work with your engineers and we'll work through it. And over a three-month period, we experimented, we made all these beautiful forms and then we bent 17 huge pillars. Some of them I sent off to the CSIRO to get stress tested and then built the sculpture. And I hadn't cut stone in my life before, I'd never worked with glass like this and that sculpture ended up being really quite beautiful. So that was my approach to the arts. It was like, you know, dive in head first and swim like hell. <laughs> Have you always seen yourself as a pioneer? Like you said, that was the first in Australia of that kind. Do you view yourself as a bit of a trailblazer? Uh, no, I didn't at the time. And I didn't realise until I was invited by the Sculptors Society of New South Wales to make a presentation on this work. And I was really shocked because I felt out of my depth. In fact, I felt embarrassed to be invited to be giving a talk to the Sculptor Society, to be honest. But at the end of the talk, I, I got surrounded by all of these people congratulating me, saying this is what the, the society needs. We need big contemporary thinking. And all of a sudden I, I thought, gee whiz, I have got no skills whatsoever. I have no artistic training. And yet I have all of these people that are well known sort of looking at this as if, it, it's important. So I, I guess at that stage, the thought dawned on me that I had produced something that was unusual. We'll touch on human potential later on, but do you feel as a society we are a bit too rigid in our thinking? Like hearing you speak now that it didn't matter what had been done before, it didn't matter if you were told no, you were willing to give it a, a, a try and experiment and explore do you feel that collectively, whether it's the education system or people's mentality, that we are too rigid and confined in our thinking? Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. You, you can see that in Australia, the, the, our manufacturing um, has just, you know, it's terrible. It's just plummeted. Um, and, and I'm aware, I have friends who, you know, of scientists who work at Sydney University and New South Wales University, who were working on voltaic cells, you know, and this is sort of 15 years ago, and, and where Australia were actually way out in front, and yet the government wouldn't support any, any of this research. And um, it was interesting, 
uh, I was aware that some of that technology were bought by the Germans and then the German government then funded their industries to produce these voltaic panels and uh, cells and, and, um, uh, and they, they made huge amounts of money out of it. But it was Australian technology. And, and that's, that story can be told over and over and over and over and over again. So I, I think we're enormously conservative. At the same time, you know, being conservative has its, has its benefits as well. And, and I think that, that between the two, between the adventurous and the pioneering and the, the conservatism, the middle road is, is acting with intelligence. So you, you and, and I think that's, and we lack that. You can see that. I mean, the climate is a horrific issue at the moment. And our politicians are not even reading the science. If they were reading the science, they would be horrified. And I find, I find that um, that's heartbreaking for me. And, and it's not just in that area. I mean, there are many other issues that, that we have as human beings that we're not willing to get stuck in and have the conversations. I mean, the way that we've been avoiding having this conversation about land rights, about the indigenous community, and about what happened at, 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 um, you know, in, at the beginnings of white settlement, we should be having those conversations. We should be brave enough to jump in. Because if we have those conversations, healing can take place. And the way, I mean, when, when Malcolm Turnbull, whether, you know, the, 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 um, that voice from from the centre that, that was written at, at Uluru. Now, I read a little bit of it. I don't know the full um, story there, but I was aware that it took a huge amount of effort by the Indigenous community. And there was an agreement from, you know, from, from nations all around the country to present this to Parliament. The Prime Minister had it in his hand for two hours and then dismissed it. That broke my heart. I mean, you know, there was not even time to, to sit down and ponder it, to consider it, to, to come back with an intelligent sort of reply. It just dismissed it out of hand. And I thought, what human being can do that? You know, that, 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 that's not intelligence. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's ideology. You know, that's, that's partisanship. That's, it's all the things that are driving this nation into areas that are... I, 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 I think are dangerous. Terence, you grew up in Blakehurst in Sydney South. What was your childhood like? Yes, I was born just after the war. It was a very different culture. I recall even at, at a young age um, the Iceman coming around in a horse and cart and, and with big tongs bringing in these big blocks of ice to put into the chest. Uh, the ice chest and um, all our veggies that someone would come around, a horse and cart, mum would go out and fill baskets with the veggies. Um, our milk was delivered in pails and left on the, the step. No, I, was, I was only a very tiny child, but you know, I, I still I remember it vi vividly. My father was, um, uh, well, I, I guess he was a casualty of the Second World War. He'd spent five years on the HMAS Australia and they sailed more nautical miles and fought more battles than any Allied ship uh, during the Second World War. And he came out of that war scarred. Um, he had a, a 
terrible problem with alcohol. And we rarely saw him for those early times, certainly the, 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 the first, the informative years. My mother, however, was a saint. She was extraordinary. Um, she not only nurtured my, my father, and um, I mean, this is just, just, just to give you a, a, an idea what these men went through, and to some extent, this, being, this was transferred to families and to children. My mother told me when I was 15, because I was having a conversation about my father, and she said, son, she said, look, when we were first married, she said, your father, around midnight, would wake up every night screaming. She said, I, I would have to um, just lie there and, and, and hold him until the terror um, subsided. And uh, she said, that went on for two years. So, my, and I thought, my God, this, this must be true for for women all over the country who were probably experiencing a very same phenomena. But nonetheless, that was my father. But my mum, she was absolutely wonderful. Um, she was completely selfless. She looked after all the kids, she made our clothes. Um, she was a wonderful cook. Uh, she got involved in the community. We had people at our house all the time. In fact, our house, our home was considered the safe, you know, it was, a, it was a, a haven. And all the kids would come after school and we'd be playing chasings and slippery dip and, you know, cricket and what have you, um, because it, it was a place of safety. And there were kids who were in families that they were being beaten horrifically. And, I, I, and, you know, there were also uh, wives who were having great difficulty in their marriages and. And so they would be at our place having a couple with mum and mum would be talking to them. And mum was so good that she would never, she was not a gossip. So whatever, what story took place at that kitchen table stayed at that kitchen table. And, um, and I think that she was enormously admired uh, around the, the, the district. That safe platform that your mother provided, do you think that helped enable you to explore, to have an element of freedom and adventure and creativity in your youth? Yes, I do. To feel safe, I, I, I think it's an enormous blessing. And I did play, I did draw when I was a kid. Um, in fact, I, I enjoyed being on my own. I, I, I was two years younger than any child in my class. There were five, my mum had five children under the age of eight. So I was placed <laughs> at school <laughs> as a very young child and, and most of the kids were at least uh, one and a half to two years older than me. Um, and so I, I enjoyed my own company. And so I, I, I played around with building boats and building planes at, you know, out of balsa and, and drawing cartoons and things like this. And, I, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. But I think I was a daydreamer. And in fact, there were times later on in my life, um, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, where I, I felt so, I felt concerned that I'd spent my youth daydreaming and sitting, you know, at school, I'd be staring out the window and in this completely new world, 
different world than, than paying attention to my school lessons. And that was, right, that was true right the way through to high school as well. You know, I, I, I just, I was, a, I was in a completely different place to most kids. And there were times when I, I regretted that, especially later on. Um, however, when I look back on that now, I believe that was uh, an enormous blessing to have the space to do that. Kids don't today. They're, they're pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, um, you know, to achieve excellence. And, and I'm not sure that's the way that um, you draw excellence out of, a, out of a human being. And was that ability to, to daydream, was that supported by your mother? She knew that that's where, I guess, you were in a good place and then that probably had potential benefits beyond just the school as well? Mum, uh, look, mum was very supportive. I'm not sure mum knew that I was spending my life daydreaming. She was too busy. But I did begin to ponder um, and question. I was questioning life even at the age of eight. You know, I remember standing in the middle of the road as an eight-year-old and I, I was looking up the, the street and I thought to myself, now, if another human being was standing in this exact same place, would they be experiencing the exact experience that I'm experiencing? So would they see the same colours, the same shapes, you know? And so those questions began to arise in me at a very early age. And then when I went through my teens... I was quite good at sport. There was a, a, a point where I, I lost interest. I, I was good at sport, but I wasn't passionate about sport. I was more passionate about listening to Mozart and Beethoven and Bach and, and asking questions. And there were times when my father and I would have these huge arguments and my father would storm out of the house and we wouldn't see him for three or four hours. And he was so upset that I was daydreaming about... And he, he, would have, he would have seen that as daydreaming, you know, having all these fanciful ideas about working, you know, being a composer or, a, you, know, a, you know, a writer or, a, you know, and, and, and exploring the meaning of life. And he just thought this was, you know, uh, you know this was poppycock. And, the re and I realised later why he thought that is because he came through the Great Depression... And I, I understood that that had, you know, that had scarred him really quite deeply. Uh, and so to see his son giving away these opportunities that were coming, especially in cricket, uh, and, and, and thinking about music, thinking about the arts, he felt I was throwing my life away. And career-wise, did you feel pressure from family or school to, to head in a particular direction? No, I was never encouraged academically. I think my father thought that if I had gone off to, to do some study, he would have been pleased, uh, or to have gone off to, uh, you know, have obtained a trade of some sort, he would have been pleased. But I went off and I was playing music in a band and making enough money to pay the rent and to buy some food. And for the rest of the time, I, I, I was pondering... <laughs> <laughs> and, and so my father was really, really deeply concerned um, about me and where I would end up, yeah. Were you concerned about yourself or you were in a good place? No, I wasn't concerned one little bit. Look, you know, the, in, in the late 
the late 60s and early 70s, the big issue that we had was Vietnam and the South African apartheid, that came a little bit later, but none, nonetheless, Vietnam was a huge issue. It was a big conversation. And apart from that, white Australians had it easy. Um, you know, it, it, there, there, were, there was plenty of work around. I could, I, I could walk into a firm and, you know, even if it was just doing a storeman's work or, or it didn't matter what it was, you could find work if you wanted it. If you wanted to go to university, that was easy. Uh, you know, the opportunities for, for people of my era were huge. Uh, and, you know, when then a little bit later when Bob Hawke came to power and there was free university, I mean, that, that, that was, they were enormous gifts for the nation. So I, I was never worried. No, never. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. school you spent a bit of time as a copy boy in the magazine industry film editing for the ABC and as you said playing music in a band as well mm. did you have particular career ambitions for yourself did you know say a path that you wanted to go down no no look this is the interesting thing even when I was a young child I'm probably 12 or 13 I, I look I, I don't know I wasn't terribly clever but I did think a lot about things I pondered things and I remember looking at around my district and looking at the families and people going to work and coming home and watching television and having kids and going to work and going to the pub and drinking and da, 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 da. and it it grew as a great passion in me not to turn out like that I, and look, at the time, I probably did, couldn't even spell mediocrity, but whatever it was, that wasn't for me. And I knew that as a very young child. However, any, any great clarity of some particular path or some particular calling wasn't there. And, 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 but I, I had to, but I was true to that intuition. That and when I and like when I started as a copy boy with the Women's Weekly, there were wonderful opportunities there. But after working there for six, maybe nine months, and and getting to know that the men that were there, and they were mainly men, I again that, that this thing rose up. I don't want to end up like this. I don't want this is life's got to be more than this, and so I quit. And I did that the next time I had something, and there were opportunities. I would look at this and I would quit. And that was exactly the same with the ABC. But the ABC was a little bit different because uh, about three years prior, uh, just before I started working at the ABC, I actually started exploring yoga. I started exploring meditation. I'd changed my diet dramatically. And my pondering um, was deepening and deepening and deepening. I didn't belong to any particular idea. In fact, 
I, I was absolutely ferocious in my, 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 my desire not to belong to any ideology, you know, and, and, and I'm really thankful for that. But nonetheless, there was this passion to understand uh, if there was something that I had to do with my life and more importantly, was my life valuable? And, and, and if it was valuable, how was it valuable? So those were the questions. And then born from those questions were the questions of what is the value of existence itself? And I think one of the things that drove me when I was young and, and drove and was a great passion that drove my exploration and my pondering was the fact of existence itself. The very fact of existence was driving me. And was and it was the and it was that that also uh, underpinned the ability to be in the most wonderful situation, having a path set out that was financially, you know, rewarding, artistically rewarding, and to see that and go, no, that's not for me, and move on. And I did that even with the ABC, because I was, I was, I look, I was trained by Arthur Southgate, who was the editor of the Dam Busters. Um, you know, and they were a wonderful team. They were, they, were, they, were, they were lovely human beings to work with. The ABC was a wonderful organisation, and I thoroughly enjoyed working there. But there was a moment when I realised I didn't want to end up like this, and I moved on. And I made that decision, and I, and I moved quickly. So I, there was no, you know, I didn't, I, there was no remorse. There wasn't sort of looking back and going, oh, I wonder. It was move on. And that's been the story of my life. For your own children, as you mentioned before, they've grown up now, they've paved their own lives. How did you go about balancing that in terms of wanting them to have their own success, but then also wanting them to, I guess, discover themselves? Like, how, how hard was that balance between pushing them but letting them explore themselves? This is... I've been exceedingly fortunate in many areas, <laughs> and, and most important in the area of family and in the area of, of my relationship with my wife, um, Shirley. We, you know, we're two peas in a pod. And I, and I think that there are a couple of things that we agreed upon that, that underpinned our, our raising of children. The first thing was that um, we, we, were we, we were really strict. <laughs> and, and when I, I mean, uh, I remember my, my daughter Natasha coming home one day and saying, you know, Dad, I can't even... We can, I, I don't, I, I'm at school there and we're, dis, we're, we're supposed to be discussing the news and I, and I had to tell them I'm not allowed to watch this. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so we had... We had the, the kids were allowed to choose two programmes a week that they could watch. Um, and I saw how cl clever they were straight away. You know, Natasha said to Tristan, well, if we're allowed to choose two programs, you choose two different ones and I'll choose <laughs> so we get to watch four. <laughs> and, uh, but no, we were, we were, we were very strict. We, we took our kids into the bush often. We did a huge amount of bushwalking. 
I mean, even when Tristan was only nine years old, we did the Mount, we did the Tasmanian uh, overland track, which is you know six days walking. I mean, surely I carried all the weight, uh, which wasn't good for my knees. But so we 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 immersed them in nature, and as far as I, I guess one of the things that we were really clear about was we wanted them to have a really good education. However, we were really clear not to push in, but to, to draw out. And they grew up in a home that, where my wife and I would sit every day for half an hour just to quieten down. Um, we would talk about, um, oh, you've just emptied his bucket. Why don't you fill his bucket rather? You know, so we had all of these little sayings that, uh, and so that they, they grew up in, in a home where there was an underlying um, theme of kindness um, and of conversation, of working things out. Um, and they saw, Shirley and I, um, sometimes Shirley and I had disagreements and we would talk for, you know, two or three hours, working a way toward some, um, uh, you know, some common ground. And so they, they witnessed that. And <clears throat> so that, that was really good training, I think, for them. And, and so all our children have gone off, um, you know, and they are themselves and they've done, they're, 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 they've immersed into their own human, their own persons and they have achieved things that we never dreamed of. I mean, my eldest daughter's an associate professor of, em, uh, of uh, epidemiology. My uh, second, my, our second oldest daughter, um, you know, she has a master's and now she's teaching piano and um, she's uh, working in Edinburgh, has her own studio and she's teaching at a private school, teaching music and piano. Um, and my youngest son, he's got a, a degree in mathematics and engineering and now he's practicing medicine. And so they've all explored what they wanted to do and they're all unique and different and, and they're all contributing to the community. And that's something that Shirley and I both feel really proud about. Terence, you started art as a profession at age 33. How did that first commence for you? This is interesting because I spent 10 years of my life, when I left the ABC, I spent 10 years of my life pondering, deeply and passionately exploring uh, life, exploring my own behaviour, you know, where I had come from, what, what had formed me as a human being or informed me and formed me. And I, and I, I, I was probably a zealot. I, I, you know, I, I, wasn't, I didn't belong to, to any particular idea, but I saw things that were so fundamental that no one else was paying attention to, like consciousness. We can't do anything without consciousness. It underpins everything. You know, I mean, you know, we build the Hadron Collider and we go, isn't this fantastic? But the thing that built it is consciousness and thought. And yet we don't pay any attention to it. It's the one thing that we all have in common. We're conscious. And so part of that 10 years, I dived, plunged, deeply into exploring, into sitting quietly and, and feeling my way into consciousness. What is consciousness? You know, to exploring thought, to look at 
the parameters of thought, the way it works. And when I came out of that 10 years, I, well, I was really, I was almost vacant. You know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'd been giving some classes uh, at, at a place called the Awareness Centre and um, uh, on human potential and on meditation. One of the chaps that was that attended that, that, those classes, he, he was a writer, and he'd, he'd been publishing technical books, but he had just finished his first no novel. And so he invited me for lunch. So we're sitting there having lunch, and he said, Terence, what do you think about that um, window up there? He just bought this house, <clears throat> thinking it was going to be a big famous writer, so he just, he just invested his money in this, in this little cottage, uh, and little timber cottage in the bush, and he said, "Yeah, what, what do you think about this window? Um, said, what, if, what if we put some stained glass? Oh, if I put some stained glass in there?" I said, "Paul, I think that's a lovely idea. Stained glass, gee whiz! Yeah, I think that would look lovely." Uh, and he said, "Why don't you do it?" I said, "Me? I don't know anything about stained glass." He said, "I'm not. I don't work. I've never worked in the arts. I've certainly never worked with stained glass." He said. Come on, play all right, he said, I think you're a bit arty. And I said, <laughs> Paul, I'm not arty in any way, shape or form. And he said, yes, you are. And he said, uh, he said look, why don't you have a go at it? And, and so I've been teaching this course on human potential. <laughs> and and uh, so he cornered me and I thought, well, look, I said, you buy, you buy the books and, and, and materials and, and things. I'll do some drawing, but if you don't like it, you've got to be honest with me and say, you know, it's crap, and, and we, won't, we won't go any further. Anyway, so I did some drawings, and he actually liked them. So he bought some books and some tools and glass, and I, I, I read up on how to cut glass and how to put the stained, um, stained glass window together, how to solder and all the rest of it. So I built the window and put it up, he, he, he was really, he, he loved it. So that, that, was a nice, that was a nice beginning. But a few weeks later, um, he asked me to come back for lunch. So we're sitting there having lunch and a friend of his walked in, um, just on off chance. And he got halfway across the room and he looked up and he went, oh, gee, isn't that lovely, that, that stained glass window? And said to Paul, who did that? <laughs> and he said, Terence. And so he turned to me and said, could you do one for me? He said, we've been talking to some glass artists down in the Shire. And he said, but I love that. He said, that contemporary approach. He said, um, and, and I, I said to Ron, Ron, that's the first window I've ever done. So you're not talking to an expert. He said, no, look, do some drawings and, and come down and, and see me. So I did some sketches, went down, and, he's, he's, and his wife said, look, we really love that. Um, could you build it? And it was huge. You know, it was, it was about a metre and a half wide and two metres high. And, uh, and I said, look, I have no idea how much something like this costs. And he said, well, we had one quote to do this for $800. Now, I'm going back, this is in 19... Uh, sorry, yeah, 1983, 84, so it's... Yeah. And so $800 was just a huge amount of money. And, and I said, look, if you're happy to pay that, I'm happy to receive it. So I built this window... And, and then someone that I was living with in the house took some photographs of it and phoned the 
you know, short times. So they came up and took a photograph of it, and it turned, and it turned out on the third page of the North Shore Times. Then the next day I got a phone call from these architects saying, we're building a, a studio, our architectural firm's building a studio. We'd love some of your stained glass in our studio. <laughs> and I didn't tell them that this was my, my second window. So I, I said, yeah, yeah, and I'll do some drawings. So I did some drawings and they said, love it. So I built the windows. And then they came back to me and said, um, we've, got a huge, we've got a huge project we're doing down at the rocks. It's for the, um, a, a church down there and in, in Argyle Street. And um, would you be open to doing a design for that? And, and I said, um, yeah, oh, yeah no, no, no problems. Oh, this was huge, a huge window. And, and they said, um, look, we, we hope you don't mind, but we've only got $5,000 <laughs> as the commission. And, and I, I just, my jaw dropped. So anyway, I did the design and they loved it and then it went through all the committees and, and, and um, what have you. And it was the Garrison Church, which is a really important church, one of the oldest um, churches in, in, in Australia. Um, so I, I did the window and, and suddenly the, 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 the doors opened and, and, you know, it just flooded in. So that was that point of inflection, do you yeah. feel? You know, if that moment hadn't happened, do you think it would have kicked off or do you think you needed that moment in time to happen? All I can say is that when you, when you really, as a human being, when you're open to possibility, um, life provides opportunity. And, and I, I'm not saying that lightly. When I mean by open... Um, if you're if you're tied up, you know, in conclusion, if you're tied up in some ideology, then yeah, these are man-made things, and and they may be culturally acceptable, and they may have some historic prowess that goes back, you know, two three thousand years, but they're still man-made. But when you start to pay attention to all of this to existence, the very thing that it fountains us into, in, into actuality, then that's what I mean by being open. And when you're open to that, there are possibilities that will emerge. And I believe that at that particular point in time, my openness enabled that to flow through. And look, I, 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 I need... There's a caveat to this, and I, 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 I'm very aware that there are human beings born into situations that are horrific. I mean, I look at what's you know going on in Syria and, and, and North Africa, and you know, you just, I, my heart breaks when I see the way human beings behave toward each other, um, and it's all self-serving. You know, I mean, it's all self-obsession. You know, these leaders that we see and people look up to some of these people. Oh, they're narcissists. You know, and, and, we, and we haven't, as a community, a human community, as a human family, we haven't arrived at a place where we begin to, to see this and call it out. But we're, we're walking toward it, but very slowly. Um, so I, when I say, you know, being open, I'm aware that I'm white, I'm male, I was in a very privileged community, you know, in Australia. Um, so one has to be mindful of those things too. You know, it's not just black and white. 
you touched on earlier that you went on to explore a range of different areas of art, different materials, different approaches to art. Some of your more famous and well-renowned work is, is your bronze sculptors that we've seen all around the country, you know, Elvis Presley in parks, the iconic figures at the SCG. Who's on the bucket list for, for, for sculptors or, or pieces of artwork generally? Who, who, as an individual, do you say, I would love to work with them? I would love to, to do a piece about them. I would love to, to... Well, first of all, I'd love to do pieces... I'd love to do more figurative work on women that have contributed. And I feel that that's an area, you know, we should be ashamed about because it is... It's, it's, oh, I mean, if you just look at the amount of sculpture around the planet, it's male, 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 male-dominated... And, um, and, and I understand that's come from a particular cultural perspective that, that has, a, you know, has a, a history that goes back thousands and maybe, and maybe goes back a million years, you know, uh, when you look at the way nature generally works with male domination. But nonetheless, as a human species, we, we've now taken another step and we've gone beyond that now. And, and so equality has to now... Uh, have its voice and it has to have its voice in the arts and I would love to see more work for some of those women who've contributed and and I'm not talking about people that have been famous and you know famous politicians or whatever I'm talking about uh, uh, Angela Merkel I've got a huge respect for her um, you know 16 years and I know she's been really unwell but her her the depth of her humanity um, the depth of her intelligence, she's a scientist, the way that she brought Germany out of, 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 of a fairly dire situation, I, I think she's a person I would love to see acknowledged. Harriet Tubman, the um, slave who escaped from in, back in, I think, in the 1840s uh, and then started ferrying slaves across the border to the north and over a period of, of, of 20 years, risked her life day in, day out, day in, day out, um, and, and saved, you know, quite a few thousand people. Um, she, she's a person that I hold in the highest regard. You know, there, and one could name many, many of them. And I think, you know, I'm not taking away, you know, our famous sports persons, you know, both men and women. Um, I think there's a place for that. But I'd love to see a greater fo focus or greater emphasis on those that have contributed to, um, to our community and a, and, a, and a greater emphasis on women. Is there one in particular, a complete project that you are most proud of? Look, there, there's not one, to be honest. Um, I'm really, I'm overjoyed that I had an opportunity to contribute to the SCG. I have a great love for cricket. To be able to sculpt Richie Benno, you know, I mean, that was a, that was a dream come true because as a young boy, he was a, he was a well, uh, you know, even with my father, he, um, that was one thing we had in common. We loved Richie Benno and, and, um, and he took me to the SCG on a number of occasions to see Australia play England. And, and it, um, so that, that was a, that was a, a childhood 
uh, dream that, that actually came true. Not that I, as a child I ever thought I'd be a sculptor, but to end up being able to, to sculpt him. And the other thing about those figures at the SCG, got to meet Steve Waugh and spend some time with him, and that was truly rewarding. But also, most importantly, uh, I got to spend time with Basil Sellers. And over a long period of time, we've, come, we've become friends and, and I've, I've worked with Basil over uh, the last eight, nine years and we've done a lot of other work. Um, actually, it's more than eight, nine years, it's uh, 12 years. We've done a lot of other work and we're still doing some, some further works. So that relationship has been not just personally, uh, well, not just artistically, um, has been rewarding, but personally it's been rewarding. However, the figures I have installed up at um, Echo Point, which are the, it's the Convict Memorial, and they were, it's called the Road Builders. Um, I'm very proud of that work. I think it's one of the, it, I, I was given free reign. So that was, <clears throat> that was one of the nice things about that work. I was told they wanted a memorial, there were five figures, and I was let go. And so uh, I was able to sculpt those figures, and they're quite rough compared to the figures I've done for the SCG. But I feel there's an energy in those figures. And when I go up there, I can still, I can still feel it. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy about that project as well. And the briefs you receive... If it is quite a specific brief when you're commissioned, do you find that harder? You, know, you talked just said about having free reign and the energy mm. that came with that. If you get a really tight brief, do you find that hard to, to stimulate the creativity? Do you view it more as just a job? Um, yes and no. It was interesting when I was awarded the project for Richie, Henry Mulholland, who was the arts advisor to the SCG, we went up to have a look at the, the road builders and it was interesting because he specifically requested that I didn't employ the same texture, the same rough kind of sculptural sort of outcome. And so I would have to say that I did feel slightly curtailed. The opportunity to work on uh, such a prestigious project and to bring to the fore such an iconic Australian completely you know, dissolved any of that um, concern. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Terence, you said to me before our chat that you love with art, watching it unfold as something utterly new, then enjoying the observation of the new design being transformed into a material. When you sit down with a piece of work, do you always know what the end product is going to look like in your mind, or is it an exploration as you go? Uh, it's more exploration. It's more, actually, I have this ability to be able to find silence very quickly. And I find, um, if I have a particular project, it's so nice just to sit and empty yourself completely and then allow something to emerge. 
And it's almost as if you're giving space for whatever is to be to be shown. And, and just in, in, in you know, an initial sort of visual thought concept. And sometimes I would start, when I start and working and I, and I start playing around with form, and I have this sense because of this, you know, what's come, what's come forth in my mind, I have this sense of a direction I want to end up in. But I do find quite often that evolves and evolves and evolves and evolves. And it's almost as if life is, is, is working through me to unfold something that I'm not even aware of until it's there. And there have been many times when I have finished a, a drawing or a sketch design and I've sat back and I've thought, my gosh, who did that? And I'm, I'm being sincere when I say that. It's not, not a trifle, it's, it's actually a bewilderment that Terence didn't do that. That's, that's come through because Terence wasn't there, if that makes sense. And, and that's a beautiful thing. That's a really beautiful thing. Because one's life can be like that too. It's just, that's not just the, the result of, of producing art. That's, that can come through in your relationships. It can come through in, in, in the way that you move you know, through the forest when you're going for a bushwalk. Um, that is that same principle. Is that the concept of flow? Do you feel that people refer to a lot and it's become quite mainstream? Is that the thing you experience when you're in that moment? I haven't read about flow, so you'll have to excuse me. I have heard the term and I have heard people talk about it, but look, it's, it's, it's simply, yeah, I guess to some extent, you know, flow is quite a nice word, I guess. Um, it is, it's interesting, because there are times when, when those moments arise, when there's a, there's a stillness, and I, this happens to me when I'm walking through the forest. Sometimes it happens to me when I'm working. It's almost like time disappears. So it's almost like there's no flow. It's just this present moment. And and I think the deeper you you go, once you know, if someone is is practiced in stillness, you then you tend to find that even space um, changes and almost dances in a different way. And and the, and your experience of space is really different. I, I think one of the one of the things that, that I've discovered is that um, the deeper one plunges into these areas of stillness and silence and, and the deeper one plunges into consciousness, there's a, there's a sensitivity that begins to emerge. Now, I don't quite understand how this, this emerges, but it's, a, it's what I call an awareness sensitivity. And that awareness sensitivity, when it begins to be present, the solidification of, of reality starts to diminish. And one gets this sense of light it's almost as if the bush and the trees and the blade of grass are radiating. And they're radiating this beautiful presence. And, and, and one feels completely and utterly inseparable from it. And, and that, that's, to me, that's, that's, that's the beginning, the very beginning of, 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 of meaning. 
it's, it arises, it's, it's not something that you can conceptualise, it's not something that you can compartmentalise. It's not intellectual, it's experiential. And, and, but it's there, it's a continuum and it's constantly there when you find yourself moving within those deeper aspects of, of, of those deeper dimensions of reality and consciousness. I think that they, and that also helps, uh, certainly helps me in my, in my, my work and, and my family and relationships. With your work, Terence, what are you trying to elicit from the audience, the viewer? Are you trying to prescribe a feeling that they might get from experiencing your work or do you like to leave it open to their interpretation? Uh, look, I, again, going back to that whole business about each, each of us being unique... I love that. You know, I love the fact that, that, that life has, has brought forth all of these bundles of uniqueness and so we, we, we process, you know, differently. However, reality, you know, reality is what it is. It is, and, and it is what is. And when, when I bring forth something, you know, that is solidified as a piece of artwork, that has, that's been born from a process that's gone on in me and if someone relates to that work in a similar way that I relate to that work, then that's, that's lovely. But I've had works and I've, you know, installed them and I've been standing there and someone has come up and said, oh, gee, that's lovely. Can you sit, look at that beautiful thing? Yeah, and, and I've gone, my God, <laughs> yes, I've not even noticed that myself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So they've, they've actually seen something else in my own work, you know. And, 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 it's, and I've got great pleasure out of that, great joy out of that. Um, but I, my, my hope is that whatever people, uh, whatever comes up within someone, uh, arises in someone when they look at my work, I, I just hope it's, it's one of, of joy. And however that is then discussed or, or however that... that, that, that However, that comes to you know. However, that, however that's conceptualised, then that you know, I'll leave that up to them. Have you found that your self worth has been tied to your work? We've spoken to a number of guests mm. on the Passion and Perspective podcast, both creative and sports people, who they tie their their identity to what they do, but also their performance then influences how they feel. Do you like to think of yourself as Terence Plowright, the artist? Or are you able to kind of separate that? My self-worth doesn't come out of my heart and never has. No, in fact, I would have to say that um, I, I walk a different line. <laughs> no, my self-worth... Um, and look, this, we're getting into areas of philosophy now that, I mean, and I don't want to pontificate because I, I think intellectualising this is, is also a terrible a hole that one can fall into. If a human being has confined themselves to a concept, you know, I am an artist, I am a football player, I am the best bowler on the planet, you know. Look, that, that's all very well and good. And I don't want to take that away from those human beings. However, a human life is infinite. A human life is extraordinary. A human life is, is, is miraculous. 
and all the, the elements of the universe exist to, to, to bring you into actuality, to bring any human life into actuality. And we, not, we, we must understand this. Some of the atoms in your body were the first atoms that came into existence 13.5 billion years ago. We understand that. So when you talk about a human being, don't completely trivialise what it is to be human. Don't, don't confine it and restrict it to a particular activity or performance or, you know, human beings are profound. I, I, for me, it's important uh, to, uh, that, that when we look at self-worth, um, that we, we let go of those things that, we, we, that confine us and restrict us and, and dull our consciousness. And I think that that's, when we're looking at self-worth, it's, it's, it's vast, it's immeasurable. And I would not just see myself in that way, I see other human beings in that light too. That when I meet a human being, I'm standing in front of something that has appeared in existence that's immeasurable. And there's great beauty in that. We relate to each other that way. And there's great beauty in that. Philosophy and spirituality, as you've alluded to, were part of your life from a very, very young age. Do you think that way of life and the knowledge of, or the appreciation of human potential has helped influence your work and helped you push the boundaries of your work as an individual? Uh, without doubt, yes, there's, there's no doubt um, that that early training has enabled me to take risks knowing full well that, um, that there's support there and that support is life itself. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I do feel enormously blessed, but, you know, there's also things that I have done. If you look at the, the amount of design work I've done, and probably this is not, not relevant to your question, but just looking at potential and what is, what is, what is possible, I've probably got a thousand drawings on that computer. I've got drawings of, of these uh, kinetic works that twist and turn um, and then eventually form symbols of infinity and then go back to forming flowers. And I have other works that, that, are, that I've worked on that, that are symbolic of aspects of life that I believe are, are important, that are profound. And I haven't found an outlet. You know, it's interesting because I don't know that too many people are interested in this sort of thing. But I'm hoping that this, this plunging into the world of art and this, this sense that we have this enormous potential, which has fired up drawing after drawing after drawing after drawing and exploring and, and uh, different areas of, of the arts and what I could do here and how I could symbolise this. And um, I, I do hope that at some stage that some of those more, for me, profound works um, can be built. Because I think I've, I've pushed areas of the arts that in Australia, let's put it this way, they're still sitting on the desk. <laughs> And I would love to see someone, you know, that has the funds, but also 
the sense of connection to that profound, to the profound nature of who we are and the profound nature of existence, and sees this and, and sees the potential of that going somewhere, because they're the things that I would love to see out there in the public arena because they're the things that represent me more than anything else and none of them have been built yet. Terence, in an ever-changing and fast-moving world, social media, mainstream media, technology, you know, more and more things are moving at a quicker pace. How do you stay present and in the moment? Look, it's, it's difficult. Uh, it's not easy. Um, and it's, it's certainly not easy when you're... Um, running a studio and at times when you've got two or three projects on and I keep a lot in my head you know I, I'm not a great one for writing everything every detail down um, I think things through and I understand how that process must work and then I, I move through that process but it's something that it's something that's kept in my, in my own mind then to have those moments of quiet to have those moments of silence I have to um, employ some discipline and quite often before I come to work I'll sit for half an hour three quarters of an hour and I just quieten down and then sometimes after work um, I'll go home and I'll sit for 15 minutes and it's interesting and I don't know if you know this is something that everyone could do you don't need to belong to anything um, but when I when I if I've had a really busy day and I go home and I sit quietly I can feel the energy around my being fluttering. And it's as if, it's as if the, the, the chaos of the day, and then I just feel it slowly but surely quietening and quietening and quietening and quietening until it's, it's calm. And then I move into you know, the night and go and cook dinner and <laughs> watch, watch the telly or do something you know, quite menial, have a go to Scrabble. Yeah, so it's, yeah. And do you notice a difference in days that you may or may not do that? So if there's a day where you're a bit rushed and you've got to get somewhere, do you find your headspace is in a different place? Uh, absolutely. And I've said this to my, to my wife many times, that, um, that I find that, that morning, you know, 45 minutes, um, almost uh, underpins my day. Um, and it's, you know, so for me it's really, really important. Do you believe in life that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves as people? Do you feel that the path is laid out from point A to point B and we just live it? Or did every decision we make as people shape our journey? <laughs> That's a huge question, to be honest. I think that most human beings are unconscious. And most human beings unfold and simply unfold the content of their consciousness. And what I mean by that is that from the moment of birth, you're absorbing everything around you. You're absorbing your parents, the way, the way they articulate. You're, you're absorbing their feelings um, and, and then your siblings and then your, you know, your, the cousins. and da, da, da. So you're growing up, you're, you're this huge sponge absorbing. And then for most human beings, I think we just play it out. So there isn't a point of shifting beyond that. And the only way I think that we get to a point of shifting beyond that is to observe our thinking. Because you get to a point when you start to observe your thinking, you 
you get to see how that thinking goes all the way back to that point. And this thinking, even though you think you might be being creative and new, but it isn't. It's all the way back to this point. So you begin to see that you're this containment of, 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 of conclusions. You know, and, and the, even the culture you have grown up in, you belong to this culture. You belong to this language. You belong to this nation. You belong to this idea or that idea or this religion. And all of that is confining. It restricts us. Now, I'm not saying that there's not great beauty in some of that, too. There is. I mean, it's, some of it's just absolutely lovely. I mean, the way the, all the different cultures around the world. So I'm not knocking that. I'm simply saying that we're unconscious to it. And until we begin to observe, and until we begin to see how it confines and restricts us and restricts our own consciousness, it's hard to step out and do something new. It's hard to... To, to be something that is not of the past. Because I think most human beings basically absorb the past and then recreate it. And you can look at the chaos in the world at the moment. We're just simply recreating what has been done for thousands and thousands of years. And we're not learning. Actually, I don't want to be... No, it's, that's probably too black and white. Some of us are. Some nations are. But many nations are not. So when you ask that question, it's a deep question. To find yourself um, and to, to, to bring forth something new, I think does require um, an ability to observe what, is what has been unconscious, our, our behaviour, even the traits, the way we speak, you know, all the little inflections. You know, I, I, quite often I've seen myself speak and I thought, oh, my dear, that's my father. You know, or my mother would say, you know, do you know, it, it's... And, and so to be mindful of those things, to be mindful of how confined uh, that has and how, restrict, how that has restricted, and then from that bounce off that, then you, you can then begin to open up something new. So to find yourself... Is, is to find the universe, is to find something that is absolutely phenomenal, is profound, and I believe every human being emerges from that anyway. So when we're going to discover who we are, we're, we're discovering this thing that's absolutely immense. Um, and at the same time, we have an opportunity to be human beings, we have an opportunity to live in the human family and contribute. And so we, we learn skills and all the rest of it. But when you find within yourself that immensity, it then can start to inform what you do. And then you're not trapped. You're not just the past repeating itself. Curiosity, creativity and integrity have been a big part of your life, Terence, and something that you would deem as a success Whilst not living in the past, do you often take time to reflect on the journey and think that young boy in Blakehurst running around with his friends has got to this point now? Yes, yes, I've, I've, looked, I've, I've certainly looked back at that young boy because I guess, you know, I, I, like many children, I think I was, I was shy as a young boy and um, to some extent I had, uh, I guess, an inferiority complex. Um, it wasn't, 
you know, I, I, I had an ability to, if I wanted to do something, there was no holding me back. And my mum said that. She said um, she'd never seen such determination in, in a young child. And um, in fact, she wasn't the only one. My grandmother said that as well. But it wasn't belligerent determination. It wasn't um, aggressive. It was, it was a... And I didn't even understand it at the time. But if there was something that I believed was important to do, I did it. At the same time, there was also these other issues that I had to deal with as, as, as a child growing up in a world that was quite violent. All the boys, that, not all the boys, no, it's not true. There were, many of the boys were, were aggressive. Um, you know, in the school I went to, it was part of the course. You know, the, the fights and, you know, and, and, and the bullying that went on. Although I'd have to say that there wasn't as much bullying in my day as there seems to be now. Um, I was rarely bullied at school, so and I have no idea why, um, but I just seemed to be lucky that that, that never sort of arose. So, yeah, and I, I've looked upon that young boy and then looked upon the, the person that I am now, and um, I think I, I, I can't see any strong resemblance other than the kindness. I was always a kind boy, and, and I've never lost that. You know... One thing that my wife and I have often talked about, I've never in my entire life experienced hate. Never. I don't know what that means. And, and I've had a lot of people be nasty to me. Um, I just can't bring myself to feel that. And that was true when I was a boy. More often than not, my journey back into the past is not necessarily thinking about myself as a person. My journey back in the past is more so honouring my mum and dad. And I think about them quite regularly. Uh, I still miss my parents. Um, you know, I, uh, my dad died nearly 20 years ago. And, um, and I still feel sometimes his presence sort of sitting on my left shoulder there. And, and, my, and my mum as well. And my wife and I often, we, we talk about, you know, our mums and dads and... And, and folks that we've, that we've lost, they're no longer here. And, and, and if I have a regret about life, um, it's, it's death. <laughs> not, not so much my wife and, and my death, you know, but it's, it's the death of those that we've loved because I would love for my folks to be around now, to see the things that, that we've achieved, to, to enjoy our grandchildren. And, and they would be absolutely, you know, They'd be in seventh heaven. And, and so those are things that I think about, you know, just, just um, the memory of, of my parents and, and honouring that memory is something that I do fairly regularly, yes. We're here at the start of 2021. Terence, what does the next six months or so have in store for you? Look, I don't know about large mile. Well, maybe one large milestone. I've been writing a book for the last... Um, I mean, 10 years, and especially the last two or three years, I've put quite a lot of time into it. And it's a book based a little bit on my life, but more so about philosophy. So a book that looks at and asks the big questions and then uh, I you know, explore things like consciousness and explore things like thought, explore things like our experiencing of reality. And, and just opening those subjects up as a conversation and hoping that I plant some seeds that enable other human beings to 
question these things too. So uh, I'm, I'm not writing the book as an authority, but I'm writing the book as a person who has observed and experienced some things and is planting seeds and hoping that, that the uniqueness of, of individuals that read the book, that it sparks their own curiosity to explore and to think and to feel and to, to dive and plunge deeply into life. Um, so that's one thing that would be a big milestone. I'm hoping to send that to the publishers within the next two or three months. Last year I had a, um, a, a, a sort of like a, <laughs> I was treading water most of the time. I did have a couple of lovely commissions that came in, one for Broome, a figurative work which is going over to Broome and I finished the um, Taylor Harris work which is going down to the Marvel Stadium at Docklands and um, COVID's held up all of those so they're still sitting in the studio at the moment. But just in the last couple of months I've had two lovely commissions come in. Um, one for Maria for in front of the council um, chambers and uh, a second commission which has just come in and that's for the Canberra Grammar School. So it's going into the centre of the grammar school just near the chapel. And um, yeah, both those works are around six metres high, so they're, they're substantial, they're contemporary, which is lovely. And I was shortlisted to put forward a submission for a Batemans Bay project, um, the, the, the new Batemans Bay Bridge, um, so John Holland funding the work. So, and I have a, a meeting uh, in about two weeks, so I'm um, putting forward my, my uh, submission in two weeks for that. So, and there are other things on the go at the moment, but I, I don't know. There's a cathedral in Tonga that are looking at these huge stained glass windows, um, 40 feet high, and, uh, and, a, and a lovely big bronze door with some artwork around it. They don't have the funds for that, but the architects are pretty keen for me to do that. So I'm not sure where that's going at this stage. Uh, yeah, so there, there, there's some lovely things that um, look to be... Um, arising in my life so I'm really really pleased by that and what's the best way for people to <coughs> check out your work is it to, to jump on the website to, to to come to the studio what's the best way to get in touch oh both I'm, I'm happy for folks to come and visit you know if uh, they want to come up and have a look at what's going on in the studio I'm doing actually that's another thing I forgot to mention I've got a six meter work here for sculptures by the sea it was supposed to have been installed um, last year in November, but because of COVID, the whole thing was postponed. So it's now it's now happening next year. But that work um, is sitting in front of the studio now, and I've got uh, you know probably thirty works from exhibitions and things that are here. And there will be the work going on for Canberra and also for Maria that will um, that will be being built in the studio. Folks, as long as they give me a phone call, I'm happy for folks to come up and have a look and. Um, see what's what's happening and um, but also they can look at the website and, and look at some not all my works on that website and I'm afraid I'm not very good I have someone that does it for me and I'm not very good at sort of keeping it up to date but um, there's some works there that they, they can see. Terence thank you so much for such a, an insightful yet candid conversation wishing you all the best. Thank you it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by the Western Weekender. For more unique and inspiring stories from the Blue Mountains and Penrith region, check out other episodes of the Passion and Perspective podcast.
You can also listen to the latest series from Sporting Chance Media, Adventure Shorts, where we chat with local guests from the world of the great outdoors and hear some of their most memorable adventures. Search for Adventure Shorts on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.